you as much time as possible. He needs no introduction, of course, so we're very grateful and pleased to welcome our first floor. Thank you, John, very much. And uh, I'm sorry, I really should be introduced as the uh, late Archbishop Florey. <laughs> and thank you for being here today. I'm, I'm, we're doing a series of regional meetings, as you probably know, and as a result, and, and they want me to introduce all of them. And as it turned out, this one was in Millersville, and we thought we could make it, but it seemed to me that uh, every construction site and every dump truck and everything else was, was in the way. So thank you. So have we prayed? No, and actually what has the We got the prayer card? That's the most important thing anyway with evangelization. So let us pray in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Merciful Father, pour out your spirit of wisdom and love to guide us in this pastoral planning process to be missionary disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ. Transform us through the Eucharist we share, that it may become the source and summit of our lives. Make us truly welcoming to all your people, that our hearts may open to your grace and mercy. Walk with us as we accompany one another along the path of spiritual growth and discipleship, and send us forth to proclaim the joy of the gospel through faith, service, justice, and love of others most especially the poor. May we never lose sight of our sacred mission to go and make disciples of all nations so that in this archdiocese of Baltimore, the light of Christ may always be a light brightly visible. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much and glad to be with you. So I want to talk a little bit about formation. But beginning a little bit with a, with a story. November of 1977, I'm a newly ordained priest. I'm stationed at St. Joseph Parish in Landover, Maryland today. These days they call it Largo, Maryland, but those days it was plain old Landover. Uh, it was, a, the, the, the rectory was an old farmhouse. And that sounds really enchanting, but this old farmhouse was infested with snakes and, and rodents. It was wonderful. And the pastor did not, he was a wonderful man, knew every parishioner, and I could not have had a better model for starting out. But he was from New England and did not believe in turning the heat on until December the 8th, the great devotion to the Blessed Mother. So we were having a, um, we were hosting a conference on evangelization. Cardinal Baum who was the Archbishop of Washington in those days, Bishop Marino, who was his auxiliary, came over, and we hosted them. And um, I could tell the Cardinal Mount was freezing in this rectory and terrified over the stories about snakes and rodents, but even more horrified at the utterly terrible wine that we served, and it was really terrible. And then we went over to the hall for a conference on evangelization. And Cardinal Baum and Bishop Marino and some others made a really good presentation. But, um, you know, it, it didn't really seem to go too well, to tell you the truth. One crusty pastor, or so he seemed crusty, got up and he said, very Protestant, and he said, besides, it's neither fish nor fowl. It's not apologetics. It's not catechesis. What the heck is it? Well, Cardinal Baum and Bishop Marino gave a very good answer, but even as a naive young priest, I could tell they didn't make a sale. Forty years later, as I go around the archdiocese, sometimes I feel like I'm in the same boat. People are saying to me, what is this evangelization thing? And when I tell them, they say, it's neither fish nor fowl. You would think 50 years after the council, Vatican II, council devoted to evangelization, four popes, all of whom made evangelization their top priority, 
innumerable letters from bishops on the subject and a veritable cottage industry of resources uh, on evangelization programs, you would think uh, that this would be a concept everyone would be familiar with by now, but that's not quite the case. I don't need to tell you what evangelization is, but it might be helpful uh, if you sort of heard it from the horse's mouth. I'm, I'm the horse today. I regard evangelization as a noun that houses both an active and a passive verb. Uh, evangelization first and foremost means the proclamation of the gospel. In our day, we speak about the new evangelization, and this does not mean the proclamation of a new gospel. The content of the new evangelization is the same gospel that the Lord gave us and the apostles gave us. It's the charisma, it's the incarnation, the life and ministry, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, we do speak about the new evangelization, and it's fair to ask what is new about it. Um, the new evangelization is basically re-evangelization. I think this is a point that Pope Benedict made when he called for a re-proposing of the gospel to those who are already baptized, but whose faith has grown cold, and a re-proposing of the gospel to those who have never really heard it. Pope St. John Paul II taught us to think about the new evangelization as new in its ardor and in its methods and, its, and in its expression. So it's not a new content, but it must have a new inner thrust. And this new inner thrust comes from the inward conviction of those who proclaim the gospel afresh. We're not just conveying information, but rather in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are bearing witness to the truth, the power, and the love of the gospel. So it's new in its methods, methods that correspond to the times, such as storytelling, social meeting, and the like, but it is the same gospel. Well, Francis affirmed that all the faithful are called to evangelize, meaning that all the faithful are themselves to undergo this transformation by the very gospel that they wish to proclaim. They are to be transformed by hearing the gospel, by encountering Christ sacramentally, by lives of prayer and penance, such that they are equipped to bear witness to Christ. How important to realize that evangelizing is not, decidedly not, a clerical activity. In fact, it is the laity who are the prime agents of the new evangelization. Pope Francis makes a really important connection. He links the inner thrust of the evangelized Catholic with the outward movement of a missionary disciple. He tells us that once the gospel has really settled into our hearts and really transformed our lives, once we have the gospel literally throbbing in our hearts, then it is that we will want to go out and share the joy and the love of the gospel with others. And so he's calling us to what he calls a new chapter of evangelization, full of fervor and joy and generosity and courage, boundless love, and one of his favorite words, attraction. So when we who evangelize give evidence that we truly believe, that we have been infinitely loved by a merciful Savior, that Jesus is utterly real to us, then I think we have a chance of winning 
a hearing for the gospel. So to evangelize, we must already have been evangelized. And we should ask ourselves, when we do this, what's the goal? What's the fruit of evangelizing activity? First of all, we are seeking to facilitate an encounter in the lives of others with the living Christ. Pope Benedict famously said that being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a definitive direction. So evangelization is finally meeting Christ as someone very real, who loves us more than we love ourselves, someone we fall in love with. And as you know from falling in love in your life, once you do it, it kind of overturns everything. It changes how you think, how you act, what you value, what gets you up in the morning. That's what this encounter with Christ is meant to do. Um, and in the joy of that encounter, we see our faith anew. We see the same teachings we may have known all our life in a new light. And we become not just recipients of the faith, we become its protagonists. So conversion and inner renewal, that's what we're aiming at when we evangelize such that the person who becomes evangelized in his or her turn also becomes a missionary disciple. And missionary discipleship is exercised in the course of daily life, in the context of the family, the workplace, our social circles. Sometimes it's exercised when another person opens up to us, or when we're in a setting where we have an opportunity to bear witness. Sometimes we find people who are finding life difficult as they bump up against a culture that's kind of hard. A relativistic, secularistic culture is not always a very merciful place. And the gospel of mercy sometimes seems like a pretty good antidote. And so it is that we are all called to evangelize, are all called to this transformative encounter. And in this encounter, we reach out to others. And our goal is inner conversion and renewal, such that we are continually helping to create, in God's grace, part of the Holy Spirit, other missionary disciples. Now, we might think that's pretty good and, you know, issue finished, but actually anyone who strives to be a missionary disciple knows there is a need for ongoing formation to get And when you think about formation, someone of my ilk and my age would tend to think about you know, continuing education classes, seminars, online things, all of the things we do that are kind of programmatic. And these things are important. After all, we're all here this afternoon, and I'm told I'm doing a podcast uh, for those who, who couldn't be here. Um, but I think that first and foremost, um, formation for discipleship is non-programmatic. It has elements to it that are important, but you cannot reduce it uh, to a program. So Pope Francis, he invites all Christians everywhere at this very moment, I'm quoting him, to be to a, a renewed personal encounter with Jesus Christ, or at least an openness to letting Christ encounter them. This openness to Christ is not something we conjure up. It's something made possible by the action of the Spirit in our lives. It's deeply personal. It is not private. And 
while often while the Lord can deal with us any which way he wants he can knock us off our horse he can deal with us quite directly most often this encounter is mediated through the church and it is meant for the church and for the church's mission so how does the church mediate this encounter with Christ first and foremost the proclamation of scripture secondly through preaching and if you read the joy of the gospel you will see how many pages the Pope devotes to preaching giving me the distinct idea he thinks the preaching that is going on in the church isn't as good as it might be. It's through the Holy Eucharist and through Eucharistic adoration, through the sacrament of penance, the sacrament of conversion and mercy, and it is through practicing the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Added to this is the development of one's own life of prayer, including the prayerful meditative reading of scripture that is known as Lexio Divina. And here is where we're all tempted to cut corners. And I'm going to speak about myself as Exhibit A. Um, I don't know if you know who Pelagius is, but Pelagius was a fellow who's a heretic, but that doesn't make him a bad guy. But he, he sort of had the idea that, you know, Christ set us a pretty good, and, and we, we usually treat Pelagius unfairly in the history of theology, I think, but I'm not going to rehabilitate him today because that takes us too far afield. Pelagius, as we commonly say of him, sort of gives us the general notion that we can kind of um, do the faith on our own, that our own efforts is at least as important as God's grace. And so uh, I would never profess that. I would never say that. I would never acknowledge that. But sometimes I act as if um, I'm the primary agent and God is the secondary agent. So sometimes when I'm facing a deadline, when work is piling up, uh, I will cut corners on my prayer. And I find myself, ironically, writing a homily about a text I have not taken the time to pray about. That is a really terrible thing to do. Prayer is how we come to the conviction that it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in us. Prayer is where we undergo that fundamental reorientation in our lives toward Christ and toward the church's mission. Prayer is where we undergo the process of dying to one's self. And according to the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, the greatest prayer of all is the Eucharist, which is the source and summit of our lives as Christians and is the most privileged way in which we encounter the risen Lord. Through the Eucharist, we absorb the charisma. John Paul II said, it is in the Eucharist that we digest the secret of the resurrection. And through the Eucharist, that we begin to take on in our lives the features of Christ. When we pray the Our Father, when we internalize the charisma, the death and resurrection of Christ, when we internalize the Beatitudes and, and we begin to take on in our uniqueness the features of Christ so that others can see and love in us the Christ who lives within us. This is really the indispensable formation for evangelization and for missionary discipleship. Um, and, and so I'll leave it at that. I think the point has been made and the time is short. Is that all right? You still with me? Need to take a break? Need more coffee? Okay. Let's talk about the places where this encounter 
this renewal, this conversion has to take place and where the new evangelization has to take place. First and foremost is the family. Our first community is the family. And it is the most basic way that the Lord gathers us, puts us in community, and forms us to act in the world. And so it was that the early church, and now in these times, the church as well, refers to the family as the domestic church. It's within the family that we learn to pray. In the family that we learn the basics of the gospel. And it's in the family where we learn to share love. Um, if we wish to evangelize our parishes, which after all, for the most part, are a family of families, then we have to evangelize the family. So many couples have a difficult time living the sacrament of marriage. So many people are at a distance from the church because they're divorced or remarried, they're in loveless marriages, or they can hardly cope, and being part of the church is actually not seen as a solution, but as a burden. No wonder the Pope called two synods on marriage, and no wonder the Pope has given us many good tools to accompany married, uh, married couples and their families in helping them along. The second place where this encounter with Jesus takes place is, of course, the church. And, uh, of course. But uh, let's talk about that for a minute, because for many people, the church is their parish, period, end of story. And the parish should be the main point of contact, and uh, it should be the primary locus of evangelizing activity. It should be an intense hub of missionary activity if it undergoes itself a missionary conversion that Pope Francis is calling for, what we might call out in the world, a change of culture. So you move away from just keeping it going to making it outward looking. But that's not even enough. Pope Francis very much warns against parish communities that are inward looking, self-referential, um, not welcoming to people, and simply concerned with its own self-preservation. Fact of the matter is, uh, a parish that is a healthy evangelizing parish is outward looking. It's friends with the neighboring parish. It sees itself as part of a very diverse, multicultural, larger local church. In this case, we speak of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. It sees itself as part of a vast universal church. It sees its and that parishioners in, in, a, in a healthy evangelizing parish readily recognize themselves as brothers and sisters to the next parish. So when we're drawing these pastorate lines, we're trying to figure out how to combine parishes that have heretofore not been combined. Some of the things we run up against are, um, uh, well, Archbishop, you can't combine us with, with, with parish X. We don't like them. <laughs> and I said, well, why not? Well, something happened in 1974. And I said, gosh, I was 23 years old when that happened. Uh, so we have to sort of think about parish for sure, but we have to think about church much more broadly. The third place we encounter Jesus is with others. And so let's think about a good saint that's had a huge influence on Baltimore, St. Vincent de Paul. St. Vincent de Paul tells priests that when their prayer is interrupted by some urgent need, especially if it's someone who is hungry or sick or dying, the right thing to do is to get up from one's prayer 
and go minister to the person in need. Mother Teresa used to speak about adoring the body of Christ on the altar and washing the body of Christ in the persons of the poor on the streets of Calcutta. Well, Francis is telling us that if we want to evangelize, we must go to the peripheries. That can mean people who are alienated and distant in that sense from the church, but it can also mean people who live vastly different lives than we do, who live at a level of poverty and a level of suffering that we find unimaginable, even if they only live a couple of miles from where we live. Um, he um, is really uh, urging us um, to be a church that finds Jesus in others. Let's talk about another aspect of formation for discipleship, and that's learning to accompany others. Well, Francis says we have an encounter with Christ, we have this impulse to go out and share the gospel, but it's not that we just go out there and tell them a thing or two. Let me explain the charisma to you. And they say, what in the world is a charisma? Um, what we are basically doing is coming out to a mission field. And we meet people of many different parts of the spectrum, and some people that might even be off of the spectrum. And we have to learn to make a connection with them. It, when he was in Rio de Janeiro uh, for World Youth Day, he talked to the Brazilian bishops. And Pope Francis said that a church which does not listen to people who tell the reasons why they have left will also be a church that will be incapable of giving people good reasons why they should return. This doesn't mean that we fold up the faith it doesn't mean that we check our convictions. It means that we engage. And so the Pope is urging us to establish within our church a culture of engagement, a culture of encounter. And it means listening, talking, looking for the opening, and genuinely trying to walk with people on their journey to life. It's not a pointless journey. It's sort of like the road to Emmaus, when Jesus engaged the distraught disciples, and he talked to them. But he didn't just say, okay, this is terrific, now let's stop here at McDonald's and you know, let's have a cup of coffee. He opened their minds to the understanding of scripture. He was leading them somewhere. He was leading them to the breaking of the bread. And that's the Eucharist, and that's what we are doing. Um, so, I, and, and once again, I'll go back. I won't repeat what I said about marriages and people in difficult marriages, but you can think of many reasons why someone might be alienated from the church. We might, there's not magic bullets necessarily, and it's not a quick process or an easy process, but you have to have people in a parish who are equipped and able to do this and to do it in formal settings, informal settings, and I can't tell you how many times I've evangelized on an airplane, uh, or sitting in a train station, or uh, just out on the street, uh, because I was standing around with my mouth open, trying to talk to me. Uh, let's also uh, talk about another aspect of formation. It's not, this is not a solitary sport, evangelization. Uh, this, is, this is something you must do, not in a solidarity, solitary way, but you must do it in solidarity with others. You have to have a, a critical mass of missionary disciples in a parish who pray together, work together, who know how to get over their conflicts, who know how to support one another in this mission. And let me just give you a very practical example from my own life. Uh, it is very easy for an archbishop to become quite isolated. 
right? Don't, don't you think I live in the ivory towers on place so, you know, dine sumptuously and dress in purple every day? Well, I do sometimes dress in purple. <laughs> um, but I find in my own life the need to pray with other bishops. And I need to be part of a prayer group. And, and not talk business, not business, prayer. How's it going? Um, what's really important? What's our struggles? Um, and that's great, except that bishops are pretty far away, and I can only do that once in a while. So I'm a part of a prayer group of some young priests and learning a lot from them. And we just get together from time to time. We do, we do evening prayer. We do some adoration. We um, have a chat about what's going on. We make a commitment to pray at the same, more or less the same time every day and do, to do the same thing. So I might be all by myself at 6 a.m. saying the office of readings, but I know there's other guys doing the same thing. It's a virtual community. Got to have that solidarity. Don't have that solidarity. Boy, I think it falls apart. The other thing. Uh, is that we have to uh, think about, and I won't, um, I won't um, dwell on this because I've already mentioned it, but I think that we have to think of ourselves as agents of culture change. And this means uh, that we have to be, that, that those who become missionary disciples, those who work on parish staffs, those who lead parishes, <laughs> Um, have to um, undergo a certain formation, acquire a certain skill set to learn how to bring about changes in communities. If you've ever worked in a company that's undergone culture change, you have some idea about how difficult that is. It often means breaking old attitudes, old habits, ways of acting, and assumptions, and it means being willing to try things that are new and different and seem kind of risky. But when Pope Francis says missionary conversion, he means you're, you're for a priest, it means you're not just the chaplain to a going concern, you're a missionary in charge of creating a missionary hub. You are in charge of helping to recognize the gifts the Holy Spirit has given to your people, calling them forth and deploying them. You are someone who delegates. You are someone who um, empowers. And you are someone who doesn't manage every aspect and doesn't have to be the smartest person in the room. People like that can affect change. But it also has to be the building of a team that is constantly undergoing formation to absorb new attitudes and new ways of doing things. Now let me talk a little bit about the dimensions of the formation that we need to do. And I'm not going to belabor these, but if I, you know, Father Grizzle, I say, if you do priestly formation, you're going to recognize these, okay? I didn't make these up. <laughs> but the first thing I think is going to be um, pastoral formation, okay? It's, and, and pastoral formation is so important. Um, a pastoral leader is someone who experiences the communion of the church. Um, who loves people, who is able to minister joyfully and faithfully, and has the desire to go out and accompany people. You could say you're going to go out and accompany people, but if you don't really like to do that, and you haven't really taken the time to prepare yourself to develop the skills to do this well, people are going to see right away you're a fish on the water. And so developing a series of pastoral skills 
certain sensitivities, empathy, understanding, firmness where necessary, because there there's always a time pastorally to call the question. And you gotta know when to call the question, when to close the deal. Very, very important pastoral formation. Second one is spiritual. I've talked about this already, but I just can't emphasize enough the importance of preparing ourselves spiritually. I'll give the old Latin adage that bishops and priests always throw out at this point in their talk. Nemo, nemo dat podam habit. No one gives what he or she does not have. And so if we don't got it, we can't give it. The third thing is human formation. Um, Pope St. John Paul II said of priests that our personalities must become a bridge to Christ and not an obstacle. But what's true of a priest or a deacon or a seminarian is also true of a religious woman or man. It's also true of a lay ecclesial minister. Um, if our um, if we have good listening skills, good collaborating skills, emotional mature, maturity, a capacity for friendship, and an ability to form appropriate professional relationships. If we have the ability to take the gifts God has given us and use them and contribute them without too much pride of authorship, without too much um, um, entitlement. That's good human formation. Intellectual formation. People sort of think of, of uh, when we start talking about the joy of the gospel and bringing about the love greater than any other love, that it has no intellectual component. And we'll be tied this if we think this, uh, because we are bringing the gospel out into the culture. So we better well be very conversant with our faith. In fact, once you've encountered Christ and fallen in love with Christ, there should be a hunger to know and love our faith. And so knowing the scriptures, knowing the teaching of the catechism of the Catholic Church, knowing what the church, um, the, at least something of the rich legacy of the church's uh, teaching is terrifically important. And knowing how to engage that in a very positive way with the culture in which we find ourselves today. Looking at the culture, flawed as it may be, for the openings, the connections we can make between gospel and culture is a really important thing. We never preach the gospel in the vacuum. And that also then requires broad cultural knowledge, doesn't it? It means we have to know a little something about well, I was going to say politics, but I think you don't need to break the politics. I do. Aren't you tired of it? Um, uh, but we need to we need to be able to to be able to uh, know something about philosophy, literature, arts, um, behavioral sciences, medical ethics, languages, business administration, leadership organizational development. Not everybody knows everything, but we have to have a lot of those things kind of tucked into our mind and heart. And this is where we probably do need to hit the books, where we do need to go to lectures, discussions, do some research, where we have an experience out in the field to come back home and do theological reflection on it the use of technology, media. That's the highways and the byways where we're going to meet the millennials. And finally, multicultural formation. And I cannot stress this enough. Uh, because of the uh, nature of the world we live in and the nature of the archdiocese that we live in. And our multicultural 
um, heritage in the Archdiocese of Baltimore is a great strength, and it is becoming more diverse by the day. Now, nobody is an expert in every culture. No one except someone like Pope Benedict can preach every language, can speak every language. But we at least have to respect the people in the Archdiocese enough to try to listen, to try to understand, to try to engage, and to allow ourselves to be enriched by the other. I think that's what the culture of encounter is all about. So uh, when I go to a, um, let's say I go to a, an all um, Spanish-speaking parish and I unleash my pretty horrible Spanish on them, um, I learn kindness. I learned that they're very kind to me and <laughs> not throwing me out. But it is this, this is good. This is a very, very important uh, part of this. Let me finally uh, kind of look at this uh, culture of encounter from a functional point of view and then I'll be quiet. What does it mean from a functional point of view? I told you what it was and what the elements of formation are. What are the functions like? Uh, first of all, I think it means engaging others through the witness of our everyday life. Uh, a lot of evangelization happens in the course of everyday life. And you see this in the Acts of the Apostles, don't you? When the Apostles um, don't organize a lecture, they're just moving through, engaging, uh, those in need, engaging those who are searching, and you see Jesus doing this too. Secondly, is creating an atmosphere of invitation and hospitality and trust. Um, so very important. Um, thirdly, is building collaborative relationships, building teamwork, building common commitment. Fourth, is welcoming and embracing culturally diverse communities. And fifth is the integration of ministries. That is to say, um, sometimes people can be really good in the ministry and it becomes a silo. The fact of the matter is they all fit together and mutually reinforce one another. Well, I tried to zip through this as quick as I could. I'm sure I'm way over time. Is that true? No, we have time for, for questions. Darn, we do. We have some time. So listen, just thank you for listening. And, and what a pleasure to have a chance to talk to you about something so near and dear, and, and, and dear to my heart. Thank you so much. So questions. I'm open for questions. I'm also open for comments. Because uh, politics is not a bad thing. It's gotten a bad name. But it is a noble, a very noble uh, profession. It has a lot to do with, with creating a just and, and uh, peaceful, tranquil society. Um, what I saw in this of late, and maybe the last years, uh, is that we tend that we are more and more lacking a framework uh, in which to talk about the issues that confront us in a principled way. 
a framework, and of course, I think we've lost the will for civility. And I think those are two things that the church in the United States and probably elsewhere too needs to do a lot of soul searching over and we have to do a lot better job providing. Um, I was just talking to a bishop today, talking at a school, uh, we put out this document every four years called Faithful Citizenship. It's not a bad document. It's pretty thick though. It's a little bit like the Manhattan phone directory. And no one reads it. It has zero effect on people's lives. And we put out catechetical materials and tweets and things like that, it still doesn't do this. Um, part of evangelizing is getting people to engage their faith in their culture. And I think we should go into this next cycle confident uh, that we have a lot to offer. Let's think about it. 18,000 parishes in the United States. The largest network of charities other than government in the United States, the largest private educational system, the largest non, you know, uh, religiously based um, string of universities. Um, I could go on. Um, an organized body of social teaching that is that offers a way of bridging political differences. And yet, we haven't made it yet. So if we're going to evangelize the culture, to your very good point, we have to find a way to come together and marshal this in a way that we have not. And it's not just the bishops. The bishops, I think, have to create a framework. And bishops and pastors have to create the safe space in which to organize to do this, but it is the laity who are on the front lines of this. And what we do is teach and form, but it's the laity who, who goes out. And it's part of the mission of evangelization, a faith that can help people speak reasonably and bridge their differences might be a very attractive faith to a lot of people who are feeling pretty bad one way or the other about the state of things today. Great question. Thank you. Thank you. and it's an observation which sadly um, I have to be able to confirm and I think that uh, um, it's it's a recognition that uh, as disciples uh, we are part of a community and we have the same mission and that importing the competitiveness of the world and the enmity of the world into our mission destroys it. And so I think that building teamwork is very important. And teamwork is built at many levels. It's built uh, in the parish team that works together. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it has to be built across parish lines. And so with your neighbors, teamwork among ministries, for example, in West Baltimore, I've been very um, engaged in getting all of our ministries there to work together uh, to provide a network for the folks who need those services that we offer. Uh, and also we have to end, if I may say so, the them and us mentality that exists between the field and the archdiocesan offices. When people use the word downtown, what do they mean? What is that all about? Uh, when they say, um, it, it, those are things that we say blithely 
but they actually destroy our mission. They actually render us less credible. And so we have different jobs to do. We all have different perspectives. We will disagree, but we always have to be on the same team. And it's not my team or your team. It's truly the Lord's team. So a great point. Thank you. And so, yes. Uh, so many non-Catholics, when they come into our church, have the faintest idea that we do at Mass. Mm-hmm. Um, and within ourselves, we even argue about singing songs like All Are Welcome. Mm-hmm. And many Catholics, when they come to Mass, unfortunately, real Catholics don't at all understand the fullness of what happens in liturgy, and yet the church teaches it's the font and summit of what we do. So my question is, what's the role, what is the place of the liturgy in the organization? Uh, a great question. Um, I, I think that uh, the liturgy, um, as I might have referred to in my talk, is truly the source and the summit of our life. And so it is the privileged place of encounter with the risen Lord, and it is the place where the scriptures are understood. It is the place where um, we are formed into the people of God. Uh, It is the place where we are sent forth, from where we are sent forth. And so I think that um, um, the, the, the task, one of the tasks of the new evangelization is helping people to know and appreciate the liturgical and sacramental life of the church. Uh, I think we might have decided that once it all was translated into English, and there's some here old enough to remember that, I am old enough to remember that, that it would now all be understandable, and voila, it's not. Um, People also, one of the great challenges we got is that people today don't know how to think symbolically. They don't have a sense of sign and sacrament as maybe an earlier generation did. So we have um, a, a kind of a steep climb with catechesis um, to do. Uh, I think that uh, in a certain sense, uh, the liturgy is, is, is not just the goal, it's not just getting people to come to mass that is, that it's, it's not just the goal of evangelization, it is the engine that drives it. And we have to think of it in exactly that way. Your listeners, uh, I come from London. cities 
um, as a destination for millennials. By the way, it's number two in the Zagat ratings for restaurants, so we should be happy for that. Let's go someplace good. Um, but, but it's very clear we're, we're, we're not, not doing as we should, in fact. So part of this whole effort we are making is certainly to reach out to millennials. Parishes have to figure this out. We have to also communicate where they are and listen to their concerns and engage them. Oftentimes, uh, it's what the church does for the poor and the needy that is the entree uh, to their um, entry into the life of the church. We recognize that they're not big on big institutions and we are a big institution. We have to break that down. So for example, at the Basilica at the 430 Mass, we aim it at millennials. Philip and James does it. St. Ignatius does it. And I suspect a lot of the parishes are doing things. Uh, Craig Gould is who runs the youth office for the Department of Evangelization and others who are here this afternoon. Big push for young adult ministry and networking young adult ministry across uh, the Archdiocese. And as far as uh, the uh, encyclical or the the apostolic exhortation, the, the joy of the gospel, it is. that we've entered into is really very much rooted in the content and spirit of Pope Francis's joy of the gospel. I made it my own, I did it my way, as Frank Sinatra might have said, but it is very much out of there. And, and I probably had a clear-headed recognition that not everyone's gonna read this much, but I had a shot at getting people to read this much. And so, and, and this really is the basis for what we're doing. So the answer is we're trying to go hard. And they are hungry, very hungry, for a cogent presentation of the faith. And uh, I think that at some level, that might be called apologetics. That's not a bad word. Apologetics is not a bad thing to do. Um, I think about uh, one who was a great apologist for the faith, um, Cardinal Dallas. But, but in many ways, when Pope Francis talks to us about encounter and accompaniment, I think he is giving us a kind of a new apologetic, a new way of doing it. So we're not uh, trumping um, worn out rational arguments. We're not, we're not giving people, I didn't mean to use the word Trump, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, uh, let, me, let me start over. Uh, it used to be that sometimes apologetics was kind of just sort of um, using rational arguments to put down objections 
to the faith. And they, they were pretty clever and they were they were interesting and they were probably it was a lot of fun. I don't know. But today I think it is more in a personalist mode where we go in and we really try to um, uh, to to elicit um, from our hearing from our hearers what their thoughts are about the faith and what it is that the human spirit requires and what comes up from people who are reflecting on their human experience and how the faith corresponds to that. So uh, Pope St. John Paul II said that Jesus Christ uh, responds to the question that is every person's life. It's that kind of an apologetics, I think, we are thinking of. I think we're done. Uh, <laughs> listen, thank you all very, very much for spending some time with me. And uh, uh, let's continue to pray for um, our church and its mission. And maybe we could end by entrusting all of this to the Blessed Virgin Mary, as we say. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at our death. Amen. May Almighty God bless us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.